everyone. If I could ask that you take your seats and we'll go ahead and get started. Um, welcome to the Atlantic Council. I want to welcome all of you who are here with us uh, and to our audience watching online uh, via live webcast. I'm Damon Wilson, Executive Vice President here at the Atlantic Council, and I'm delighted uh, to be opening today's conference where we officially launch the Global Business and Economic Program's uh, timely report on the future of the European economy and its importance to the United States. I want to encourage all of you in the room and all of you uh, watching to join the conversation using the hashtag EUGrowth. Um, I'd also like to extend a very well, warm welcome to the many ambassadors who have joined us, uh, who are with us today. Thank you for, for being part of this discussion. And to thank many of our uh, guests who have traveled across the Atlantic to be with us. Uh, and a special uh, welcome and thank you to Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt and to Prime Minister Jose Barroso, uh, who have so ably led the Council's Euro Growth Task Force. Thank you for your leadership. Before I hand over the, the, the mic to Ambassador Eisenstadt to officially kick off uh, the conference, I want to make just a quick announcement, but an important one. Um, the Atlantic Council has a global business and economics program essentially for two fundamental reasons. Um, first, we simply couldn't pursue our mission effectively at the Atlantic Council if we didn't factor in geoeconomics. Indeed, the premise of today's report and much of our work is that the failure to accelerate growth in and of itself is a challenge, a threat to our community and its values. But the second reason we have this programming is because of the strong support from our board. And in this context, no one more than Ambassador Borden Gray has helped us to ensure that we have the resources to be an effective voice on issues of finance and growth. Um, so today, we're pleased to announce that Andrea Montanino, who many of you know is the director of our Global Business and Economics program, will also become the C. Boyden Gray Fellow on Global Finance and Growth. Thank you, Boyden, and thank you, Andrea. Um, congratulations. Andrea joined the Council in early 2015 after a long career at the Italian Finance Ministry and the International Monetary Fund with some time at the European Commission. And he's provided the intellectual leadership for the Council's economic work, as well as served as the rapport of this report, where he did a terrific job of pulling together the various pieces into a comprehensive, cutting-edge analysis of the European economy and its importance to American prosperity. Ambassador Gray, who's well known in these circles at the Council, has been a long-standing leader at the Atlantic Council. Uh, he worked uh, in the White House for 12 years, first as counsel to, to, uh, to the Vice President during the Reagan administration, and then as White House counsel to President George H.W. Bush. And he left his imprint, uh, a very strong imprint, on the issues of regulatory relief during his service. Under President George W. Bush, Ambassador Gray served as ambassador to the European Union and as U.S. Special Envoy to Europe for Eurasian Energy. Uh, he continues to serve as the vice chair of the Atlantic Council and on our board of directors, uh, on the executive committee of the board, has made important contributions to today's report as a member of the task force. Um, thank you very much, Boyden. It's uh, without supporters like Ambassador Gray, the council simply couldn't do its work and fulfill our mission to promote constructive leadership and offer a forum for navigating the economic and political changes on both sides of the Atlantic. So thank you very much. Now I want to uh, be able to get the program started by turning over the floor to Ambassador Stu Eisenstadt, another long-standing supporter and leader on the Executive Committee of the Council's Board of Directors. Ambassador Eisenstadt not only chaired, co-chaired the Eurogrowth Task Force that produced today's report, but he also heads the Council's work on Iran and contributes to all of our work related to Europe here. 
Uh, Ambassador Eisenstadt has one of the sharpest minds in Washington, and so many successful public servants have been mentored by him during his service over three administrations. Uh, he served as U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, uh, as Deputy Secretary of Treasury in the Clinton Administration, as Chief White House Domestic Policy Advisor to President Carter, as Undersecretary of Commerce, of Undersecretary of State. Uh, in these roles, he was uh, an architect of the transatlantic agenda with the EU and helped develop the transatlantic business dialogue uh, antecedents that really underpin much of the work you see today. So with that, Ambassador Eisenstadt, let me turn over the floor to you. Thank you very much for your leadership on this effort. Thank you, Thank you very much, and, uh, and welcome to everybody, especially to my co-chair, Jose Manuel Barroso, the former president of the European Commission and former prime minister of Portugal who will speak in the second panel of today's conference. And I want to thank all the members of the task force. This really is a joint effort, uh, and the report uh, shows the impact of all the members of our task force. Today we're launching the Euro Growth Task Force inaugural report, and it is the result of the Euro Growth Initiative that we started literally a year ago. We brought this initiative to life in March of 2016 with the goal of providing a blueprint of how to restore sustainable and inclusive economic growth across Europe. In our view, and I want to state this very clearly, the greatest threat to the European Union comes from the absence of sustained economic and job growth. And the best way to revive confidence in the European Union and in the whole European integration project is to stimulate greater economic and job growth and more innovation. This report underscores also why a strong Europe is absolutely vital to the United States. The EU is the largest recipient of US goods and services and the European countries are by far the largest foreign investors in the United States, sustaining over 7 million jobs in our country. Calling this report timely would be an understatement. The European Union is facing great uncertainty. Its stagnant economy is subject to significant economic and political headwinds. Populism and nationalism are on the rise. Brexit looms large. And three of the six EU founding states, France, Germany, and the Netherlands, and perhaps Italy as well, will hold elections this year. An EU-wide solution to the ongoing wave of migration is nowhere in sight. And Greece continues to suffer from an unsustainable debt burden. The report that we released today addresses the challenges facing Europe with a focus on short-term responses, medium-term deliverables, and long-term plans for better integration of economic policymaking. Let me say at the outset that several EU member states have taken very positive steps in areas like labor market reform, 
apprenticeship training, sound fiscal policies, which can be usefully replicated by other states. Also, we in the United States have much to learn from Europe. This report aims to recommend five main messages. First, after a mutually agreeable Brexit, the EU needs to make a palpable positive difference in the lives of its citizens. And I want to say very clearly also, and I think President Barroso, if you would agree, that one of the problems fundamentally is that European politicians blame their own problems on Brussels and the positive aspects they take for themselves. Second, a strong EU makes the US stronger. Higher rates of growth in Europe will directly translate into higher rates of growth in our country. Third, to foster growth and restore confidence in the EU, there must be higher levels of investment and innovation. One key finding in the report is that these are impeded by inadequate capital markets, with 80% of private capital provided to business coming from traditional commercial bank loans, and too little available for startups and medium-sized and small enterprises from venture capital, private equity, IPOs, and other non-bank equity financing, which are critical in the United States, where only 20% of private capital comes from bank loans. This is a substantial deterrent to innovation in Europe and job growth. It also must be said that EU member states, like Germany, which run persistent large current account surpluses, should adopt more demand-driven growth to help other member states grow and avoid the imbalances which feed resentment. Fourth, in addition to more investment, the EU must push projects that are key to growth at a time of historic low borrowing rates and they can be implemented in the next 24 months. And finally, we advocate in the longer run funding EU member states and those states with strong economies move toward greater fiscal cooperation and integration through measures like Eurobonds to build a Europe of concentric circles. The main author of the report and the director of the Atlantic Council's Global Business and Economic Program, Andrea Montanino, will present the report's main findings and recommendations in more detail. But I want to say personally that Andrea's leadership has been absolutely stellar and indispensable, and he has been an inspiration to those of us on the task force. His clear vision over the course of a year has provided the driving force to make this report a reality. After Andrea's presentation, we will have a stellar panel to discuss what directions Europe should take to foster growth. Is there a need for more or less Europe? This panel will feature Olivier Blanchard, the Fred Bergston, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute, Xavier Rollet, CEO of the London Stock Exchange, 
Paul Thompson, the director of the IMF's European department. And then after a short coffee break, a second and critically important panel will feature Gordon Bajnai, former prime minister of Hungary, my co-chair, Jose Manuel Barroso, Paula Dobriansky, former undersecretary of state, and Raymond McDonald, Jr., CEO of Moody's. They will discuss how e U.S. economic policies can affect EU growth and vice versa. To conclude our conference, European Commission Vice President and Commissioner for Digital Single Markets, Andrus Ansip, will deliver keynote remarks. And you'll see in our report a call for a clearly needed completion of the digital single market. We're honored to have Vice President Ansip join us today to hear the position of the European Commission on how to stimulate Europe's growth and why it's important to the U.S. So finally, this report, which we're releasing this morning, does by no means conclude the work of the Euro Growth Initiative. There is much more to be done. And I hope this report will increase the reach and impact of our initiative and provide momentum to build upon the excellent body of work that this report embodies into the balance of this year and beyond. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome, uh, welcome Andrea Montanito to the stage. Thank you again, Andrea, for your great help. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Stu, for your kind words, and also thank you, Boyden, for the fellowship. I'm really honored. Uh, so this report is really about uh, a possible path for Europe. Um, there is a road. The road, as you see in the presentation, has bumps, has clouds, has curves, uh, but it's doable. Uh, we think it needs a vision and a strong leadership, and also that actions are uh, needed uh, now. We try to make a case on why European economy growth is important. It's important for the EU, of course, but it's important also for the United States. And uh, we try to look at how uh, to achieve uh, better results. Uh, so let's start on why European growth is important for the EU. I mean, this is obvious. Uh, but uh, uh, why is it particularly important now? We see at least three reasons. The first is that since the start of the convergence uh, process in 1992, uh, European economy has grown approximately by one percentage point less than the United States each year. So it means that when Europe grew, when, when the US grew at 4%, uh, Europe grew at three, when it was two, it was one. Of course, there are differences across years. There are years, of course, when uh, Europe grew more than the United States. But over the 25-year time span since the start of the convergence toward the euro, more or less the difference has been one percentage point. And this is an unfortunate coincidence because uh, people now associate, uh, European citizens associate economic integration and common currency with comparatively slow and worse economic uh, outcomes. Uh, we all know that the reasons behind uh, European growth are many. It's not the currency, it's not the European Union, but this is what people uh, see. And therefore, area-skeptic parties are gaining strength in many member states, and local population, local leaders uh, in several countries in Europe now favor national, non-EU-wide uh, uh, solutions. So we think that more growth is necessary to change the narrative about uh, European integration. 
A second reason is youth unemployment. Youth unemployment is, uh, it sits above 20% in Europe now, which may consign over uh, 4 million youth unemployment, uh, uh, youth uh, people to unemployment over the next decade, if this is not re reversed, and create a generation defined by political extremism and uh, on both the left and the, and the right. Um, in, at the same time, European population, as you know, is aging. Um, the current demographic trends show that um, in the next decade, uh, the European Union will move from four to two working age person per retiree, uh, putting significant pressure on healthcare and uh, pension system. So more growth is to avoid a lost generation and to prepare the future. And the third reason is that Europe uh, is also in the middle of a tempest of geopolitical tensions. All the major conflicts are around Europe, the Ukraine-Russian conflict, uh, the turmoil in the Middle East that has resulted in migrant crisis and terror attacks. All these underscore the fragility of Europe's economy and will continue to do in the foreseeable future. So more growth uh, is needed for Europeans to provide leaders in Europe with enough political capital, and I would say also financial resources, to handle this external threat. European growth is important for the United States. Uh, I think we have to say this uh, very clear uh, and very strong. Uh, there are a number of reasons. The first reason to me is money. Um, in the graph on the right, uh, you see uh, the export uh, of goods and services from the United States uh, to its largest trading partners. And the blue line, the line on the top, is the EU 27 countries, so excluding the UK. So even the, in, the, in the future possible setting of the European Union, 27 countries, uh, the, 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 these 27 countries are the largest recipient of American goods and services. So of course, more growth in Europe means more demand, more import, and therefore more export for uh, American companies. Um, China's far behind, UK is around one third of what is EU 27. Um, it's not only trade, it's also investment. Uh, in the two pie charts that are in these slides, you see the US foreign direct investment abroad on the left and the uh, FDI in the United States. This is the stock. It's calculated at a historical basis. Um, the largest uh, part of the pie is, again, European Union 27. Um, around four, more than 40% of American investment abroad are in EU 27 countries, which means that an increase in economic growth in Europe makes a difference in terms of uh, profits of American companies and therefore uh, jobs, growth, and, and, and so on. Um, American com uh, European companies invested massively in the United States. This is the pie chart on the right. You see the, the, the section that re re relate to U27 is almost 50%. Um, there are a lot of um, European companies that came in the United States to invest in this country, to bring jobs, to bring skills, especially manufacturing, uh, to bring technology. Uh, so uh, it's an important part of, uh, of the European economy. And in order for um, European uh, companies to continue to do so, of course, we need growth in Europe. Uh, 
is not only money. Uh, European growth is important for geopolitical and geoeconomic reasons. Um, uh, first of all, the EU is a major player in development aid, which is a component of the geopolitical strategy. Uh, it's the pie chart on the, on the, on the left. Uh, EU 27, again, uh, with the UK outside, represent almost 42% of the uh, development aid around the world. And together with the US, they play by, by far the largest, uh, the largest role. Europe is important for crisis management. As I said before, all the crises around Europe, and if Europe is not strong enough to handle this uh, crisis, to be the front line, uh, the U.S. has sooner or later to step, uh, to step in. So geopolitical uh, reasons uh, behind uh, European growth is, are, are important. Uh, there is also a, a, a relevant aspect for me, which is global economic governance. Um, I mean, the world is complex. Globalization showed that uh, um, a financial crisis in a tiny Mediterranean island uh, like Cyprus can have an impact on global stability. So the world is interconnected, and we need multilateral organizations that take care about this and try to smooth uh, these, uh, these problems. Um, the pie chart on the right shows the quota shares in the International Monetary Fund. And again, as you see there, uh, the largest part is EU27. They represent almost 26% of the quota share. Um, together with the United States, um, Europe managed uh, so far to, uh, to, to lead this organization, to provide a view, uh, to provide um, a path forward to uh, to uh, favor um, favor uh, financial stability. The IMF is, of course, only one example. We can have the World Bank. We can have other organizations. But these organizations are quota-based. It means that the role of each country is based on its size, its economic size. So if Europe shrink, uh, shrinks, uh, United States have to look forward uh, for another partner in, 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 in dealing and running this organization. And frankly speaking, we do not see a reliable partner, partner ready to play the role that EU played so far. Um, so this is what we, we think about uh, the importance of the European economy uh, for the United States. But we wanted to test our hypothesis. And we ask a random sample of Americans uh, why they think Europe is important for the United States. Look at this clip. So <clears throat> at least our sample of people think that it's important. I know it's, it's not, I mean, probably Olivier Blanchard will, will disagree on my method of uh, testing hypothesis, but that's the way I did it. <laughs> so um, so how we can, how we can uh, get there, how we can generate more growth in Europe? Uh, as, uh, as Ambassador, said, Ambassador Eisenstadt said, there is a three-pronged strategy. Short-term responses uh, to populist concern with a deadline, say, mid-2018. Uh, to deliver concrete outcomes in the medium term with a deadline, say, by the end of the term of this uh, European Commission. And third, to launch an ambitious, a long-term plan for more integration, say, with a deadline in, in the next uh, five years. Uh, 
the report focuses on the EU level, doesn't look really at what single member states can do. So it's just part of the story. But we want to uh, make a case that there is space for European institutions and uh, for the EU as a whole to generate the conditions uh, under which single member states then they can, can, can work for having uh, more growth. So in the short term, in the short term, there are a number of things to be, uh, say, fixed. Uh, the first recommendation we have is to negotiate Brexit wisely, uh, having in mind the next 20 years, not the next tw two years. Um, the Brexit process is very complicated. I don't want to get into it. Uh, I would say it's almost impossible uh, from an institutional point of view. Uh, but UK knows that European Union is important, and the European Union knows that UK is important. Uh, London is the, the European financial hub, so it creates, it, it provides financial resources to uh, European companies, to the real economy, uh, to finance economic growth. And uh, uh, as we all know, the UK is one of the friendliest business environment for financial services, uh, according to the Doing Business report, for instance, of the World Bank. And it has attracted a lot of talent from both its top-ranking university and from abroad. So it will be very difficult to imagine better condition for financial markets than those now available in, in London. Um, uh, there is an issue about uh, the EU budget. Uh, according to the House of Commons, uh, the, uh, the, the UK has to contribute still 67 billion euros to the European budget until the end of the multiannual uh, financial framework, which is 2020. So it's after the, uh, the Brexit, the, the, the supposed Brexit. So how we handle the budget is important. Uh, and then there is, of course, the relevance of the European Union in terms of trade, uh, in terms of uh, negotiating trade deals uh, uh, on behalf of the UK. So there are a lot of complexities. It's important that the negotiations start, if they start, uh, in, in the proper way with a, with a long-term uh, long view. A second area we recommend to fix quickly is Schengen, to restore uh, Schengen fully during this year. There is an opportunity. Uh, the number of illegal immigrants is, is diminishing. It's still very high. The preliminary estimates for 2016 says 400,000 uh, people, uh, but down from 1.8 million that arrived in, 20, uh, in 2015. Uh, and we think that the risk is that a temporary measure uh, of limiting, uh, of limiting um, movement uh, of people can become a permanent feature with, with cost. There are 1.7 million cross-border workers every day. Uh, there are direct costs associated with border controls, uh, costs in terms of uh, uh, transportation, trade, etc. So uh, restoring Schengen is, is, is crucial. And, the third, and a third area to be fixed is TTIP. Uh, we believe that TTIP, under the current political uh, conditions in the United States and Europe, is uh, probably, uh, I don't know what that, but will be difficult to survive uh, as it is now. But this does not mean that this is the end of a transatlantic partnership. This is not the end of a pact between Europe and United States. Rather, starting from what has been done so far in TTIP negotiation, 
we believe that uh, EU and the US has to sit to the table, have to sit to the table and work on a new pact that maybe focus on areas where there is a direct immediate uh, uh, benefit for both um, for both regions, uh, but there are a lot of uh, a lot uh, to do. So we recommend not to kill uh, TTIP, not to kill the idea of a pact between Europe and and uh, and the United States. Um, another suggestion is in the report. This is uh, maybe a little bit more controversial, um, and we had a lot of discussion in the in the task force on that. But we think that there is a window of opportunity, and the window of opportunity, as we have seen this morning, is closing. Uh, that is given by exceptionally low. Uh, lending costs for the sovereign, and uh, uh, this window of opportunity should be used to uh, made, make maybe a one-off boost of public investment. Uh, the fact is that public investment is still 40 billion euros less than its peak in the EU, uh, and the recovery is underway but is not strong enough to absorb unemployment. Um, so our suggestion is one of the suggestions, I mean, as said, we, we recommend to explore it, uh, is to uh, see whether countries that have a deficit to GDP ratio below the 3% threshold uh, can have a one-off temporary measure uh, of 0.5% each year, this year, next year, uh, to increase investment. As a temporary one-off measure, this can create around 80, 90 billion additional uh, euros of additional investment with an impact, of course, on demand in the short term, but also on uh, supply on the, in the long term uh, as a response to low potential growth. Um, this is not a generalized call to, uh, to additional public spending. I want to be clear on this, uh, uh, but it's, it's really the idea of looking at something that is, uh, that is uh, permanent and one-off. So this is the short term. In the medium term, in the medium term, there are a number of projects that are there, are in the pipeline of the European Commission, and can uh, and should be completed by the end of the term of this com Commission in order to provide the right framework. Basically, all of these projects are about deepening the internal market. In the report, we quote and we, we mention uh, at least four areas. One is the energy union. The other is service regulation. A third is digital barrier. Maybe um, Vice President Ansip will talk about that uh, later. And the fourth is the capital market union. Just let me say a word on the last one. Uh, the, the graph there shows the venture capital deal value in billions of dollars uh, in the United States and in Europe. Europe is the blue bar, and it excludes UK. So you see that in terms of venture capital resources, um, in the European Union, there are seven times less than what you have in the United States. Uh, but the two economies are, broadly speaking, the same size. So there is clearly a lack of alternative financial uh, resources in Europe that is, uh, is, uh, is limiting, according to us, growth. So completing the capital market union, creating a, a larger and a broader market for alternative financial, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's vital for, uh, for growth. So all these projects do not generate growth per se, but they generate the right condition for member states to take advantage and, and, and make their reforms, which are extremely important. And then the long term. 
Well, the long term is, is really what is in the news cycle uh, in, the, in these days. Um, the European Commission can out, came out with a paper last week or two weeks ago proposing scenarios. Uh, several European leaders met this last Monday in Paris, and uh, uh, there is, there is a, in a, a mounting uh, uh, attention on providing a new institutional architecture in Europe. Um, Angela Merkel uh, Monday said a Europe of different speeds is necessary, otherwise we will probably get stuck. Uh, but President Hollande already in uh, July 2015 proposed a, a sort of an avant-garde of countries, uh, of, of some front runners that could move for more integration. President Juncker, President of the European Commission, November 2015, uh, said that the European Union uh, will have to review its framework to allow some countries to do everything together and others to be uh, less involved. So we think it's time to start with the long-term plan. Um, the meeting uh, of the European leaders on March 25th in Rome can be the opportunity to launch this. But what, what this means in practice, what, what is a long-term plan? Um, well, our, um, our uh, suggestion is to move from what you see on the left to what we propose on the right. So from a European geometry that uh, include different countries in different ways to something that we call a concentric circles, where you have an inner circle of countries uh, in this, uh, in this uh, graph called EFA countries. I will explain in a minute what I, mention, what I mean for EFA. Uh, but an inner circle of countries that move for more integration, in particular more fiscal integration. Uh, who will be in this inner circle? Well, ideally all the Eurozone countries, but uh, we suggest not to stop the process. And if there is an avant-garde, if there is a group of countries that want to go ahead, uh, of course, a subset of uh, Eurozone countries, they should be allowed to do. Uh, there are a lot of technical questions, how you do this, how you handle uh, different level of fiscal integration uh, with the same uh, currency, and how you convince the benefit of, uh, that there are benefits for, uh, for more integration uh, among countries with very different budgetary uh, position. How you put together Italy with Germany, in a way. Uh, so uh, what, what should countries in this inner circle uh, uh, do? Um, we, uh, we suggest the creation of a European fiscal authority, as said, a EFA, or at least to explore the option for a European fiscal authority, that we'll have three main uh, tasks. Uh, the first task is to issue common debt for growth, uh, eurobonds. Um, eurobonds uh, not to mutualize uh, public debt, not to uh, finance uh, current deficits, but really to finance uh, uh, infrastructure, human capital, and research and development. Uh, we think that eurobonds will show European citizens that Europe is not only a bureaucracy that put rules, but that can do something uh, uh, directly and, and concrete. So a direct response to growth. In a way, the European Investment Bank example with the Juncker plan showed that this is possible. You can have European level doing things concrete for, uh, for growth. Um, 
A second task of the European Fiscal Authority uh, might be to manage a common budget for stabilization purposes. Uh, so not just, uh, uh, not just for symmetric uh, shocks, but also asymmetric shocks. So to have an authority that really have uh, the freedom to use uh, some resources to stabilize uh, the cycle. Um, in order to avoid a sort of adverse selection, to have bad countries or poor countries, uh, going into the inner circle, you need also something else. And we think you need that the European Fiscal Authority have the, uh, have the, uh, the right, the strength, uh, to enforce corrective measures to member countries when there is a significant deviation from fiscal target. Of course, this is a big loss of sovereignty by a single member state. So it's a difficult, of course, a very difficult step. But as the, 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 the graph here shows, um, fiscal rules as they are now not really worked over the last, say, 15 to 20 years. Uh, this, uh, this graph shows uh, the number of years that member states were above the 3% uh, GDP, G deficit to GDP ratio threshold, the master threshold. Um, and in this, in this table, you see that are not just the usual suspects that have a deficit to GDP about 3% for many years, so Greece, Portugal, but also France, 12 years, UK, 12 years, uh, Spain, nine years, Italy, of course, eight years, but also Germany. Germany for seven years since 2011, 2001 had a deficit to GDP ratio about 3%. This is a rough measure. We know there are, of course, cyclical reasons behind that. But an enforcement uh, mechanism, uh, a stronger enforcement mechanism can maybe allow a country like Germany to join an inner circle with the countries that have high, uh, high public uh, debt. So I will uh, conclude saying that uh, we think European Union is a story of success, despite all the harsh headlines of recent years, um, the Brexit, the unemployment, low inflation. Europe has shown resilience and capacity to adapt over the years. Um, there are short-term responses and medium-term projects that can be easily handled. Maybe not easily, but they can be handled. Uh, there is a need for a long-term plan to be started now with a vision and a strong leadership. And maybe a question is whether we have this uh, strong leadership in Europe now. But in the meanwhile, given that this is the month of the 16th anniversary of, uh, of Europe, uh, I want to wish, and I think we have to wish, happy birthday to Europe. And we have our sample of Americans doing the same, saying happy birthday to Europe. Thank you very much. Um, I want now to uh, kick off our uh, first panel. Uh, dealing with the question more or less Europe options for more growth ahead of the 60th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome. And I invite our panelists to join the stage. And I want to introduce uh, the moderator of the panel, Megan Green. Uh, Megan is the managing director and chief economist at Manulife Investment, where she is responsible for forecasting global macroeconomic and financial trends and analyzes the potential opportunities and impacts to support firms' investment teams around the world. Previously, she ran a London-based economics consultancy practice, Maverick Intelligence, 
And prior to Maverick, uh, Megan was the director of European Economics at Rubini Global Economics. So Megan and the panels, please join the stage. Thank you. Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, oh. Do you hear? Yeah. Hi. How are you doing? Nice to meet you. Hello. Hi. Great. Thanks for that introduction, Andrea. Um, and I commend you for taking such a huge bite dealing with European growth. It's such a huge topic. Um, we have an excellent panel here. And I can say in organizing the panel, the panelists have um, shown themselves to be incredibly feisty. So this should be a good one. Um, <laughs> They need no introduction, and we've had a brief one already, but we have Paul Thompson, who's the head of the Europe Department at the IMF, uh, Xavier Rollet, who's the CEO at the London Stock Exchange, and Olivier Blanchard, who was the chief economist at the IMF, but now sits at the Peterson Institute. Um, and we've agreed um, to allow them each to have five minutes to respond to the report, and then we'll have a conversation off the back of that. So um, we can start with Olivier. OK. Good. Well, good morning. The, uh, the I think it's a very good report. Uh, we could go through each of the sections. I'll, I'll just make a few remarks and then move on to my objections. Uh, I like the short run recommendation. I think that there's indeed room for a careful fiscal expansion. Uh, my twist would be that it might be better used uh, to recap the banks in some countries than to do public investment, given the difficulties of doing public investment right and the need to do recap in a number of countries uh, soon. Uh, and I like the uh, four uh, medium uh, term well-informed uh, on energy, on banking, on, on services. And I think there, uh, there was serious work, uh, which clearly uh, should be explored further. Uh, now, to the reservations in my remaining four and a half minutes. Uh, <laughs> I thought, I hesitate to say this in front of uh, Manuel Barroso, but I thought that it was a bit politically naive uh, as a report. I mean, one could be more polite and say too optimistic or something like this, but I think naive is. And the, the, the place where I start is I think there is, am I going to exaggerate? There is no popular support for more Europe in most of the European countries. There is support for Europe, but more Europe, I think, is really not. Uh, a, a selling point vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, most people. And I think it's in the nature of things. And Brussels is seen as a big bureaucracy, which, which it is, which it has to be in a way, and, and is seen as, uh, and as, a, as an example of why Europe is not good, this additional layer. Uh, the last big project was the euro, the one which really kind of uh, motivated people. And now it's seen as maybe not uh, such a great thing to have had. The only exception I can think of is Erasmus, which is a program which is very, very popular with people who have used it and maybe could be extended to more people than just uh, college kids. Uh, but it seems to me that that has to be taken into account in, in what, we, what we suggest. So let, let, me, let, me say what, let me say a few things. So, so what, what, if I had to write a report, I would say, well, what, what is it about the European construction that people object to? Um, are these objections uh, uh, warranted, and can we take care of them? And then what is it that we can add, given that there is no great enthusiasm to add anything? And I think that on the first, there is a number of features of Europe 
which great people the wrong way and, and, and could be uh, could be changed. So he goes, I'm going to give examples, but he goes from the symbolic to the, to the more serious stuff. <coughs> symbolic, uh, two sieges of parliament, one in Strasbourg and one in Brussels, that, seems, that is seen universally as, as an example of waste. Uh, it would be very nice to remove it if the French government was open to it. Uh, the uh, size of parliament, which is clearly too large and is seen widely, wisely, uh, widely as not working, which I think is a fair statement. Uh, going to less symbolic but uh, more important things, there are some mistakes. I think the, what's known as the Directive uh, for Qualified Workers, which allow workers to work in another country but paying the social contributions of the original country, creates an unfair uh, playing field in which people in the France, for example, think that they, not they cannot compete with Polish workers in France because Polish workers have to, contri and so social contributions associated with hiring Polish workers are lower than for French workers. Uh, that is, I think it was a mistake, a very costly mistake politically. I think that should be removed. On Schengen, I'm much less uh, eager to have it back. I mean. Schengen was designed in an environment in which that kind of flow of immigration did not exist, and it made a lot of sense, and uh, it was a very good thing. For the moment, although the 2016 numbers are, are better, uh, it is a completely different environment. We cannot protect the uh, outside <coughs> borders. We know that. It's impossible. <coughs> and therefore, the notion that some, for some time, given that the environment has changed, uh, we may want to suspend Schengen seems completely reasonable. Uh, it should be done. Uh, and explaining that that's not going back on Europe, it's the environment has changed. I fully agree that if we can go back to it quickly, it would be great, but whether it's this year or next year, I, I don't know. Uh, so it seems to me there's a number of things that can be done there, and the problem is that we leave these criticisms to the anti-Europeans. And I think if we accept it as the parties, as those of us who believe in Europe, as accepting that these are changes which have to be made, my list is longer, we would take away some of the arguments that the populists uh, are, are using. On, on the second, so this was a remove our question. On, on the second, which is what can we add? I like very much the uh, last slide or next to our slides on concentric uh, circles, although I would make them overlapping circles. It seems to me that uh, for particular projects, some countries may want to be in and some countries may not, and may, may not be concentric. Uh, it seems to me that, you know, for example, on defense, it's clear that some countries are willing to go further than others and can create something, which actually has largely happened. Uh, does it need to include all countries, just those who want to do it? On migration, I think it's the same thing. Uh, you can have circles of uh, countries which basically have open borders between them and not vis-a-vis -vis the others. Uh, on fiscal, uh, that was discussed. It seems to me that there is a number of countries which might be willing to uh, go further. Maybe not all. It, it seems to me that that kind of, it's not multi-speed, it's multi-circle. Uh, approach is is uh, is the way to uh, get the support that Europe needs. So these dimensions, I thought, were were missing from the from the report, and I would have liked to see them there. Okay, thank you, um, Xavier. Let's hear your comments for five minutes. Thank you very much. Um, we certainly welcome the uh, conclusions of the report, and in particular the focus on growth. Europe was founded on the graves of a hundred million people. 
that was the cost of World War I and World War II. And over the last 70 years, by and large, except for the Balkans, Europe has enjoyed peace. And peace initially in the 50s and the 60s meant reconstruction, meant growth. But there are 25.5 million unemployed workers in the European Union today, according to Eurostat. And although the environment has somewhat improved in the last few months, Europe still suffers from a deep deficit in terms of its economies, whether we agree that there is a single market in some areas or not, whether we agree that it's complete or not. I think most people would agree there's still a lot of work to do to truly create a single market. We, for example, do not have a single market in financial services in the European Union. And, and services, by and large, account for 75% of EU GDP. So it seems to us that the focus of this report is the right one, focusing on growth. Because I think few people would disagree with the political benefits of having European nations stop fighting each other. And I think we've seen and we've enjoyed those benefits. And perhaps we've forgotten the uh, benefits of not having a European uh, environment or European uh, uh, continent that is at war with each other. Perhaps not necessarily physical war, but uh, opposition, competition, or other forms of, uh, I would say, disagreement that prevent the focus that citizens would like to see on job creation. And so those 25 million or 25 and a half million unemployed workers, how are we going to find a job for them? And we know jobs are not going to come from the government sector, which by and large in Europe is and remains very heavily indebted. Whatever the reasons were for these debts being created, infrastructure investment, the funding of a welfare system that is no longer affordable, given the performance of the economy. You mentioned, sir, um, I think the polls uh, are charging or being uh, charged or paying less in terms of payroll benefits than the French. I don't think there is a nation in the world that charges less than France, actually, uh, for payroll benefits. There is a real issue in Europe in terms of competitiveness in three areas. The cost of labor, not wages. Wages have been flat for 25 years in many countries. But the cost of labor is way too high. In fact, is about a third above the cost of labor in the United States. The cost of energy, until the fracking revolution that has impacted the cost of energy around the world, the cost of energy was three times higher in the European Union than in the United States. And the cost of capital, and I'll get to that in a minute, because this, we believe, is a fundamental area that needs Wholesale review and restructuring, cost of capital remains in the region of a third higher than in the United States. And why is that? Because Europe is obsessed. Policymakers are obsessed with debt. You think of funding the economy, the only word that comes is bank lending. 80% of corporate funding in the European Union continues to stem from bank lending. That only, if you look at the United States, equates to 18% over here. And that is why the Capital Markets Union, we believe, was created, a project which we strongly supported, still strongly support today. How are we going to find those 25 million jobs if they're not going to come out of the government sector, and they shouldn't? And we know that they're not going to come out of the blue chip sector either. If you look at the last period of uh, strongly growing corporate earnings, 2005, 6, and 7, 
where on an average European blue chip <coughs> earnings grew at 15% per annum, three years in a row. 15% per annum equates to doubling of corporate earnings over a five-year period. In that period, net employment, job creation, performance, by the blue chips quoted on the DAX, the MIB, the CAC, and the FTSE, was negative 0.6%. And that's the most you can hope for in very good times for the blue chip sector is to keep the stock of employment flat in the European Union because the cost of accessing labor, of accessing energy, and accessing capital are way too high. There is a competitiveness issue that Europe is faced with. How are we going to fix this? Well, what is the last and third area that could create those 25.5 million jobs that actually is starting to receive suitable attention, I think, in Brussels, and starting to receive suitable attention by a number of European governments where ultimately real political power lay. And it is, of course, the army of 23 million small and mid-sized enterprise that populate the European Union. What do these companies tell us? Their number one problem is not access to innovation. European universities produce a lot of great steins still today. It's not access to entrepreneurs. There are armies of entrepreneurs. You know, some countries have more of them. The UK has 5.4 million SMEs. France has 2.3 million. Germany, 2.6. I'll conclude briefly. I know my time is up. But what they complain about is access to capital. And why does it have to be that the only source of capital can be bank lending? What about capital markets? And now look at fragmentation look at regulation, and look at this particular European feature that capital, if distributed through debt, is subsidized. In 2015, the treasuries of the European Union spent 570 billion euros subsidizing debt, particularly in the financial services industry, whilst long-term patient capital that underpins capital markets, equities, is taxed four times through its life cycle for the same euro of earnings. So what we're arguing today and what we think this report helps put in focus is what are not only European authorities but national authorities going to do to recalibrate the regulatory framework, the capital markets exchange framework, and more importantly, the fiscal framework to give entrepreneurs easier access to long-term patient capital equity just like it happens here in the United States. And it is not that hard to do, but it requires one thing. It requires European government to get out of the business of deciding who, via the bank banking system, which is highly concentrated, who gets access to capital. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks. Uh, so I, uh, uh, <clears throat> I, I like much of what I heard. I think uh, the, the focus on growth is, 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 is indeed very, very timely. And uh, I, I agree with many of, of, of the recommendations. I agree with most of the recommendations. I, I, I do disagree with some of the short-term recommendations. I'll come to that. And like Olivier, I do think that uh, the, the, the politics underlying it is, uh, is lacking in realism. And uh, uh, I think that's dangerous. I think uh, 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 without a more, more, more realistic view on the politics, one could actually end up achieving the opposite of what you want to. To achieve, let me let me start by let me start by reminding you that despite that Europe uh, has been hit by uh, uh, 
uh, or adverse. That there are political uncertainties all over, all over the place, major political uncertainties, and we have Brexit. Despite of that, the recovery is actually gaining pace. And it, it's, it's quite robust. Uh, uh, and we actually are now at a stage where uh, unemployment just fallen below 10 million, and we think in the fund that the remaining unemployment is almost entirely structural. Europe's problem, if you want, is not one of demand, if you want to put it uh, uh, like, like that. Now, that's not to say that growth, growth potential is not a problem. We th do think over the medium term, uh, potential growth of, uh, is only around uh, one and a half. It's, it's the low. With these growth rates, uh, some of the weaker economies in the south will, uh, will uh, take more than 10 years for output, 10 more years for unemployment to come below pre-crisis level. That's obviously a major, uh, 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 a, a major problem. Some of, these, some of the factors that, that weigh on growth are crisis legacies, like, like high debt, but mostly they are structural problems that to a large extent predates uh, the crisis. I mean, let me give you an example. Uh, uh, if you compare Italy and Germany, you will have ever since Euro adoption in 2000, you will find that manufacturing wages in Italy and manufacturing wages in Germany more or less increased in line with each other. I mean, almost match each other in Euro terms. Whereas competitors have steadily deviated, so that by steadily throughout the period, so by now there's a gap between Italy and Germany from where they were in 2000. Of, uh, that has opened up of 30 uh, percent. Uh, it's a deep structural problem. It's, uh, if you look at the founding members of the euro uh, and look at, the, at, at them before euro adoption, you will see that there was a steady convergence between uh, uh, of, of, of the catch-up of, 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 of countries below uh, per capita GDP uh, with those with higher. Since euro adoption, that convergence has mostly stopped. Actually, since your adoption and until the crisis, it mostly stopped. Since the crisis, we have had a divergence again. So there are deep structural problems that uh, uh, need to, be, uh, uh, to be, be dealt with. I think the, f the first and foremost thing I want to emphasize is that most of the challenges that arise in this regard are at the national level. It is absolutely key that it is uh, uh, the, the fundamental challenges to overcome the problems that, 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 are, that are obstacles to productivity growth are at the national level. And so while I welcome the proposals to build on the architecture and, and improve the architecture, it should not mask the problem or be an excuse for not dealing with the problem at the national level. I think that is, that is the first thing. And this, so it leads me to the thing that I am where I disagree with you on the on the, on the short term term challenges. We have six countries now where debt has increased to above six countries inside the eurozone where, where debt has increased to above 100 percent of of uh, 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 GDP. We have indeed so we have we have a, a large number of countries with very limited fiscal space. Europe's fundamental challenge in the, in the sort of uh, short to medium term is that the output gaps and the, the, the fiscal space is totally mismatched. The countries that have fiscal space, like Germany, Netherlands, have no output gap. And the countries that uh, do not have fiscal space, uh, you know, uh, like Italy, uh, uh, do have uh, uh, output gaps. What does that mean? 
That means if there is a shock to the system, no, there is a big risk that a number of countries would be forced into major counter uh, uh, sorry, pro-cyclical tightening just when the shock hits. And one can, have say, one can have, of course, hope that there will be changes to the architecture that will allow more central capacity in the meantime. That is a pipe dream. That's not going to happen the next, next couple of years. So I would strongly uh, uh, urge for not to have these proposals that just, no, no countries, countries with high debt need at this point in the cycle, where growth is, is, is relatively strong, they need to undertake fiscal consolidation. Because otherwise, as I say, they will be forced into a major, or there's a risk that they'll be forced into a major pro-cyclical tightening in the, in the next shock. And I think I, 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 um, one should not, not recommend this general, general suspension of the SGP that, uh, that, that, that you are uh, 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 recommending. This leads me to what I, th I think is, is my, my main observation, and it's pretty much in line with what Olivier uh, said. I, I, know I, I do think there is, a, there is a insensitivity to the political realities of Europe in, 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 in uh, 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 the report. I you know time and again when I talk to audiences outside the, the, the Eurozone, there's a fundamental lack of understanding on what does it mean that we have particularly a currency union that is not a political union. It is it's it's no it is some sometimes uh, policy recommendations that are obvious if you are inside a political union like the one you have here, uh, 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 or no, Japan or whatever it is, I know profound, pro profoundly difficult to implement once you're inside a union that is not a political union. Let me be, no, let's be blunt. There is no support at this stage for more transfer union. That's, you know, there are of course some transfer union structural funds built in, but there is, there is no su support uh, uh, for, uh, for, for, for more transfer union. Actually, there is a deep concern that your existing structures are already encouraging moral hazards. There's a deep concern that already what is in place is discouraging some countries uh, 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 from, from adjusting. I, no, I, I'll not go into whether this is right or wrong. These are, are complex issues. But what I, what I think is critical for, for what you are proposing is if you will want to build more Europe, and I agree one need to build Europe, it needs to start with building trust between the capitals. And if you want to build, build trust, you need to adhere to the rules. It is, they have, well, the SGP, as you talk about, it's a cane set of rules. It must look bizarre if you, can't, if you sit in Washington that you have these kind of, 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 of fiscal uh, uh, rule. But they are critical if you're inside a union that is not a political uh, uh, union. And the lack of enforcement of the SGP has been a major reason for the distrust. And proposing at this point in the cycle to again suspend the SGP is just going to encourage more distrust. And I, you know, to me, it, it, is, it is a bit of a paradox that you are saying in the report, we need more fiscal union through eurobonds, and we promise in exchange for eurobonds to adhere to the rule but now let's break them. That is just, no, it's, uh, I, I, I think this needs to start with at, at, adhering uh, 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 to the rule. So quickly, what should be done? We think that uh, uh, 
There are a number of countries with fiscal space, like Germany. They should most certainly use it to have a more expansionary policy. There are a few others also. We fully agree with that. We think that countries that are uh, you know, close to full employment, have no output gap, they need to accept, since they have signed up to a common monetary policy, common inflation target, that they will have inflation above the target for a prolonged period. And some of these countries that are calling for premature uh, 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 normalization of monetary policy should, uh, uh, should stop that. It's, uh, it, there is a need for continued accommodating monetary policy uh, by the ECB at, 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 at this stage, and it's far too early to talk about normalizing, normalizing monetary policy. And we think that Brussels needs to adhere, to, you know, enforce the SGP to, to, build, to build the trust. Then, at the same time, we'll need to incrementally, very incrementally, build on, on the architecture. I agree with the banking union. It's, it's, a, it's a major thing. I do actually think that even in this environment, with a lot of skepticism of Europe, I do think that capital market union is still one of the relatively low-hanging fruits that one can, uh, one can pick, and that is politically not that controversial. And uh, I think one could make uh, a process there. We agree with the Younger, you know, the, the, the younger Initiative. Uh, and I think that your report contains a lot of, sort of uh, good proposals uh, beyond, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, beyond the sort of macroeconomic sphere that one, one, one could work together. So let me stop here, Megan. OK. Thank you. You guys have given us a lot to work with. Um, Olivia, I wanted to start off by clarifying something that you talked about. Um, so you highlighted that um, there's absolutely no popular support for more Europe. Um, and in terms of the short-term policies, the report suggests they're partly to address populism. Um, so if further integration is in a way to address populism, you also mentioned that you wouldn't be so sad if Schengen didn't come back. Is limiting the movement of people a way to address the populist threat that we have now? That was a question. That was the question. I Is limiting the movement of people a way to address the populist threat that we have? Look, I think the po populism in different countries has different sources. Uh, I think immigration was partly an issue in the UK. Um, partly the hate of Brussels was another one. In Germany, I think it's a big issue. In France, immigration, recent immigration is not the issue. It's the lack of integration of second or third generation immigrants. Uh, but yeah, I think we have to take this into account and to the extent that immigration from Syria, from Iraq, from uh, North Africa uh, is an issue now. Yes, we have to be realistic and, and put some limits. I mean, uh, again, because when we say we should be generous, yeah, I want to be generous. But in practice, you know, these people will go into particular cities and we know that there is a level of, uh, of immigration in a given city or in a given neighborhood, which creates very adverse reactions. We know that, and, and we can understand why. And I think we have to take this into account. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I think this surge of immigration from, uh, from the Middle East is going to come to, not to an end, but at least it's going to decrease a whole lot. So I think these are temporary measures. But yes, I have no problem with recommending it. Yeah. Okay. And another short-term measure you mentioned was um, recapping banks. I'm just curious where you think banks need to be recapitalized in Europe? Well, I can think, you, you know, we can name names, and uh, then this will lead to tweets. But, uh, I mean, uh, Italy, <laughs> well, <yes. laughs> Italy is surely one, uh, and uh, Portugal is surely another one, if yeah. I may. Uh, and, and here I want to actually strongly disagree with my former colleague, Poor, which is that if you actually look at the effects of issuing debt in order to recap banks so that they can actually lend more, 
you actually decrease the debt to GDP ratio. Mm -hmm. This is one of these things in which it's very efficient. That's money which is used very efficiently to create growth. So it has to be done well. It has to be done with taking into account governance issues and all, all things like this. But I think even countries like Portugal or Italy uh, actually should be allowed to use fiscal uh, deficits, mm -hmm. or larger ones, in order to recap the banks and some of the constraints there. Okay. Uh, are counterproductive. The other place where I disagree with uh, with poor is on the SGP. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we should have the approach of uh, of the Trump approach to Obamacare, which is uh, repeal and then repair. I mean, it has to be done at once, but it can be improved, and I think that it has been so badly designed that it has been counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, uh, you know, Xavier, you highlighted how much uh, lending is reliant on banks in Europe. Um, funding, yeah. Funding, funding sorry, is, is, is reliant. Uh, to the tune of 80% exclusively provided by bank lending, and which is a European peculiarity. Yep, and very different from what we have here in the U.S. Very much so. Um, and presumably part of that is because you've got balkanized markets. So what do you think the prospects are for Capital Markets Union, Paul mentioned that it was low-hanging fruit. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. We were a very big supporter of the Capital Markets Union. In fact, as, as an exchange, as an infrastructure company, we created platforms like Elite, uh, which operates now in 27 countries in the EU. is unique. In fact, it's just signed up Israel, Morocco, Russia, and the Ukraine, which are interesting bedfellows. But where I would say is the mechanism to help fund small and mid-sized enterprise, the real economy, the guys who are actually going to create the jobs, simply except for initiatives of that sort. And Elite has now grown in two years from zero to 700 companies, starting to raise you know, billions of euros of long-term patient capital. What's the antidote to debt? It's not more debt. It's definitely not negative rates. What do you do with negative rates? You kill savers, you kill the banks, you, you completely throw the entire financial economy upside down. The antidote to debt, of course, is that one word that people hate even mentioning in Europe, and it's equity. Hmm. When are we going to develop an innovative European economy that can create hundreds of billions of wealth based on long-term patient capital that does not require servicing of debt that does not require liens or mortgages or second mortgages, where the investor takes the risk with the corporate insurers. And it is that fundamental recalibration of the minds of decision makers that we think is required in Europe if we're going to have an innovative wealth-creating economy. There isn't a single market in financial services in Europe. It's a highly fragmented market. Do you know how much equities trade every day in the US? Two, three hundred billion dollars. China. 600, 700 billion dollars, we've had trillion dollar days. Do you know how much equities trade in the entire European Union? And I'll get to the CMU in a second. In a good day, 40 billion. Mm -hmm. It is a deeply under-equitized environment. And now we want to do the Capital Markets Union. 70% of all financial services in the European Union are in the UK. How's that going to happen? And yet it feels today that the preoccupation of European authorities, at least some of them, Rather than you know, implementing new integrative legislation, pushing through things like MIFID II, for example, which is very late. You know, we're in March, and we still don't have the guidance on a third of the regulation, legislation that is going to take effect in January of next year. The priority seems to be to try to get back as much 
as possible out of the UK through the imposition of what will be effectively currency controls, restricting the ability of non-eurozone-based infrastructure companies to clear euros in violation of equivalency agreements signed with Japan, signed with the United States. And so it seems to us, certainly in the infrastructure area, you want to create 25 million jobs, you need a capital markets union that actually helps create the structures that makes it available to these small companies that are growing very fast to access whatever type of capital they need in a fashion that is widely distributed throughout the European Union, that isn't penalized by regulation, but also isn't penalized by a deeply adverse fiscal environment. And when that recalibration happens, when governments, and I very much agree with the, the point you made, sir, that a lot of that responsibility lies with the national governments who have a structure for the distribution of capital which is highly concentrated in the hands of a very small number of players. When we understand that wealth creation linked to capital markets, you can call it capital markets union, is dependent on making access to patient capital easier at a lower cost for the real providers and creators of wealth, the entrepreneurs. Once we spread that out throughout the European Union, it could be an initiative like Elite, it can be many others. In fact, there should be many others. We'll have the job creation that we believe then helps address the issues about immigration, about sharing the wealth. You've got to create it first. And so that recalibration of the mind of decision makers away from the planning of yet more debt to fund the debt that has been incurred, to fund a welfare system that many European nations can no longer afford. I wish, I wish that the indebtedness statistics of some of the southern European nations were correct. When I hear from you, sir, and I concur, that many of nations now have exceeded 100% debt to GDP. I wish the statistics were correct. But in many cases, if you look at contingent liabilities, pension fund liabilities, infrastructure debt that's been kept off balance sheet, if you look at off balance sheet items, 100% debt to GDP, to me, in many of these instances, is just an aspiration. In fact, the debt of these nations far exceeds sovereign debt far exceed these official statistics. And that's the issue today. The enormous amount of public debt is crowding out the, the private sector. And this needs to be addressed. Re-equitization of the corporate sector, making capital markets, making energy markets, making labor markets more flexible, more fungible, more attractive, more competitive. That's how we're gonna create jobs. But also for the government to get out of the business of deciding who gets access to capital. Yeah. And Sorry, that's what you have today in the highly concentrated distribution model we have in Europe. Can I ask really quickly, because opinion. you're focusing on equity, but when people talk about capital markets union, they're often focused on debt, um, which you're yeah, suggesting thanks. we need to move away from. But the, the conventional wisdom is you create this gargantuan capital markets union, and you need an asset class that's deep and liquid enough to be able to resist sudden stops. So do you think we can have a capital markets union focused on equity without creating such a deep and liquid asset class like Eurobonds really quickly? We're not, we're not saying debt is bad in all, in all shapes. It should only be equity. We are arguing for a recalibration, less dependency on debt, and bigger room made through 
addressing the regulatory and fiscal, the punitive regulatory and fiscal charges put on equities. When markets seized up in 2008, 2009, 2010, which markets seized up? Debt markets, intrabank lending, securitized markets, equity markets, they didn't seize up. Now, you might have liked the valuations. They just tanked, yeah. They tanked, <laughs> yes, but you could still raise. You know, in 2009, 100 billion pounds was raised in equity markets right. in the UK. You might not like the price, but you can still trade. Okay. That's not the case with debt market. When they seize up, nothing happens. So what we're arguing for is something more akin to what is here in the United States, a recalibration to make long-term patient capital available to entrepreneurs more easily accessible. Okay, thanks. Um, Paul, it's no wonder that someone from the IMF is highlighting structural reforms. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, we've obviously seen structural reforms in some of the weaker states. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what structural reforms are needed in some of the stronger states um, like Germany, but also what about the new member states because um, we haven't addressed those at all. Yeah, so I think it's, I like your emphasis on the new member states. We seem totally to forget that. And uh, 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 we talk about stagnation, risk of stagnation. Uh, uh, no. Thank you very much. The members, new member states would say we are actually uh, growing pretty robustly and, uh, and uh, conversions have uh, reassumed, uh, resumed and uh, uh, you know, un unemployment is again well, you know, well below crisis level and, and uh, uh, the new member states are, are performing very well compared to the universe of emerging markets. So uh, uh, there is a piece of Europe that's working very well that we should uh, remember. Uh, now, on the, on the structural reforms, uh, clearly uh, 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 countries like Germany uh, uh, have a long menu of structural reforms that they need to do, and, uh, and many of them could be helpful in, uh, in, uh, in unlocking a stronger demand, and uh, 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 so I sort of you know, certainly would, uh, would uh, welcome, welcome that. Now, let me just... One, one, one reply to Olivier's point. I was obviously not saying that the, that recapitalization of the banking system is not as essential, as critical. It's a, it needs to, to happen uh, uh, for anything to, to be credible, for, of course. Uh, I was reacting to the proposal uh, on, on infrastructure spending uh, and, and, and suspend the SGP on infrastructure spending. I agree the SGP is in dire need of, of, of being, a, no, it's, it's a mess. It, it's far too complicated, it needs to be simplified, it needs to be reformed. No doubt about that. My only point is that if you want to build the mutual trust that allows us to make an incremental uh, uh, progress on the, uh, uh, on, on, on the architecture, you need to, to adhere to the rules. And uh, 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 sort of changing the rules, saying oh, they don't make any sense. Uh, if that's being seen as a sort of backdoor way of, 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 of even at this strong point in the cycle of, of having a fiscal expansion, you're going to have problems. You're going to have political problems. So that's, that was my, uh, uh, my, my only point. Let me just say, on the, on the link, link to this, there's this call for, uh, uh, for more fiscal union. And, and I think you, uh, the word was true uh, 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 Eurobonds. Now, if 
and let's get to the heart of, of, of my point. If you are in, uh, you know, in the highly indebted countries and you talk about fiscal union, what do you, what do you hear? It's proposed about eurobond mutualization. If you are up, up north and you talk about fiscal union, what do you hear? Well, it's about political union. It's about if you want to have the benefit of our mutualization, we also want to have a view on when you should retire and, 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 and et cetera, et cetera. So these are, of course, the complexities of, of, of it. it. And it has to go hand in hand. And do you think we need, if let's say we had eurobonds magically, um, do you think we would need a fiscal authority to manage them? Um, because credit card companies, for example, have mutualized debt. There's no central authority. So is a fiscal authority absolutely essential for fiscal union, do you think? I think it depends on what eurobonds you have in mind. I think there are possibilities which do not require more uh, fiscal structure mm -hmm. than now. And there's a proposal which is to securitize for the private market to securitize uh, uh, the existing bonds and then have two trenches or three trenches. That can be done, I think, under the existing fiscal rules uh, without much, uh, much danger. That would be progress. You can be more ambitious, but that, that seems feasible okay. now. Okay. Interesting. I'd like to open it up to the crowd. Um, and I'd like to start off um, with listening a question from uh, Boyden Gray, if you've got one. Um, well, my question is um, is about the key point of SME small business where the <coughs> jobs are created uh, and the relationships to the capital markets. My experience has been in the United States that <coughs> uh, Europe does quite well uh, with um, vocational training, and we could learn a lot <coughs> from you. Uh, how to do that. We just don't have a very good system. <clears throat> I think conversely, you could learn, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot from us about, about transferring um, innovation from your great universities to your entrepreneurs. Uh, capital plays a role in this, but I don't think it's the only problem. I think there is, um, there is not the same, we have a legislation called Bayh-Dole, that's former Senator Bayh, um, which facilitates the transfer of, of uh, patented uh, or patentable material <coughs> to the private sector for uh, use in profit-making enterprises, which universities can't do very well and probably for complex reasons shouldn't do. So that is my question. Is this something you're focusing on? Is it getting better? Is it being done? Because I think uh, there's a lot of, an enormous amount of talent in uh, the universities in Europe that's, that's on the table being, being lost. That's a very good question, sir. In fact, I, I happen to be uh, an angel investor in one such university um, offshoot in, in biosciences. And so I've gone, this was prior to my time with the stock exchange, so about 10 years ago. But I went with these scientists. I'm not a scientist myself through the whole process of seeking to recruit capital, long-term patient capital, equity capital in Europe at the time, this was 10 years ago, for biotech business, which, which have a specific uh, risk return profile and require many years, you know, they require that patience. And in those days, it wasn't possible that companies in the United States today. I've seen changes in the last five or six years, particularly in the United Kingdom. 
It's been focused initially around manufacturing, fintech, software, and there's no doubt that the fact that the UK in the last five years has gone from about two and a half million to 5.4 million SMEs, UK created 655,000 new businesses, net creation last year. Now, France did 60,000. So there's something happening, and certainly it has been in the UK, and we're starting to see in a number of cities across the continent, the beginning of a tech revolution. It can be biotech, it can be energy, it can be software. So I think things are changing. They're clearly not good enough, but the UK, for example, created the patent box. So there has been changes in regulations. But the key point that these startups continue to tell us is, of course, the technology, the ideas, the staff, but universities tend to recruit from all over the world. And that's, that continues to be their strength. And I hope that the new immigration policies aren't going to stop that, because that would definitely be the end of European universities, as it would be anywhere else. But the recruitment of capital, or patient capital, not debt, remains the biggest problem. But we are starting to see some, some interesting changes, and I would say particularly in the United Kingdom. Great. Um, Let me just add that sure. the wealth in San Francisco is extraordinary. For sure. Mm -hmm. They've been going at it. Not for five years. They've been going out. Basically, if you look back at the, uh, you know, the tech revolution started in the mid '80s, when when, when uh, Microsoft moved out of Albuquerque onto the West Coast, and it was really the mid '80s and, and and early '90s where the tech revolution started. And what was what, what is starting? What was what happened there in the mid '80s? Starting to happen in the UK today. Obviously, on a smaller scale. Some of the technology, like graphene, for example, I'd like to mention that example that came out of University of Manchester. That's world class. It's going all over the world. So there is a revolution going on, but it's early stages, which is why it is so important, it seems to us, that governments as well as the European Union stop focusing on an incredibly complex system that no one manages anymore. We're talking about securitization for SME funding. This will never happen. It's a contradiction in term. Let's focus on entrepreneurs. Let's focus a little less on fighting each other with all sorts of regulation as to which capital will seize which business from which other capital. And let's focus on the needs, the declared needs. You know, when we launched Elite in Brussels, we took 60 entrepreneurs from all over Europe, from Lithuania down to Portugal and Israel all the way up to Scotland, to tell MEPs, to tell commissioners, this is what we need. That can be done. We can do that. We can save Europe. We continue to focus on academic debates about further integration or not integration, and this and that and the other structure around that. Frankly, I would not rate the survival chances of the European Union at more than 50% today if we don't change very quickly the direction of travel, in my humble opinion. Okay, there are a lot of hands, so in the interest of getting as many questions in as possible, I'm going to take three at a time, but please make them the questions and the answers pretty short. So we'll start here. Apologies for being here. Yeah. My name is Walter Jurasek. My simple question is, why so much is emphasis of globalization, um, including Brussels, instant of localization? The small businesses, they know better what to do than micromanagement from Brussels. So my question is, why with so much emphasis of globalizations? Okay, we'll take a question from over here. 
Thank you. My name is Katrina Soku with Greek Daily, Kathy Marini. Uh, Ambassador Eisenstadt mentioned uh, the Greek debt uh, as a, a concern not only for Greece but for Europe as well uh, and as a challenge. And it just came from Delphi where it seemed like the private entrepreneurs were eager and desperate really to see growth returning to the Greek economy. Um, I'm wondering, uh, what do you think... Uh, can happen on a European level within a Euro growth initiative for this Greek uh, economy to recover and whether you think that the 3.5% primary surplus target that seems to be the idea these days for the next five years can really, uh, what, the, what the effect will be on growth of such a policy. Thank you. Okay, and then we have one up here. Thank you. There's a mic. Perhaps a more positive uh, note in terms of the uh, Baidol question that you mentioned. Um, Helsinki and Stockholm, Estonia, Tum in Munich, the Catholic University of Leuven, not to mention Cambridge, are all hotbeds of very active innovation. And some, like Berlin, have emerged in the last five years. You mentioned a lot about the need for patient capital, and you talk about a lot of European programs, and I think it would be useful I'd like your view on this to talk about the substitution effect, that when you get EU programs in place, then the, the nations no longer venture into that space, and I think that's disastrous. You also don't, you've mentioned several times, patient capital, but you make no mention of the SBIR program, which provides $3 billion a year, which is three times what the venture capital community provides for startups. Okay, thanks. Um, Paul, I'll start with you. We'll go in the reverse order this time around. Well, do you want me to answer? Which one? Uh, Greece, yeah. I assume. Okay. Uh, well, I think <laughs> our view on Greece is very, uh, very clear. We think uh, on, on the debt. Uh, we think uh, Greek debt is is clearly unsustainable. Uh, what do we mean by that? That we mean uh, no uh, no amount of, of reforms and adjustment by Greece uh, uh, will make debt sustainable without. Uh, some relief measures from from the European side. Uh, uh, we also think that uh, no amount of debt relief uh, uh, will uh, help Greece without a much stronger structural reform in, in, in Greece. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, as far as the question of, of the 3.5% uh, uh, fiscal surplus, uh, uh, you know, we think that it's uh, one, one could target less if Greece and the Europeans agree on 35 uh, uh, That will affect growth uh, adversely for a while, no doubt about that, uh, uh, compared to, 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 a, to a lower surplus. So, uh, I mean, our views on this, I think, is, 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 uh, is, are, are well known. So let me just uh, stop here. Okay, thanks. Um, Xavier, did you have a response? Um, I mean, there were several questions here. Yeah. And I would say, in general, the fact that the EU or a number of national governments have started programs, mm -hmm. and, and it's undeniable that throughout the EU, whether it's the Nordic countries, the southern countries, central, eastern Europe, there are areas where entrepreneurial spirit clusters of innovation um, are, are starting. It could be fintech, could be biotech, but it's also not a coincidence that the country where they have been the most successful at converting that science into real businesses, and it's still early stage, and we're still at the early stage of that path from startup to startup, is the UK, because the UK has by far yeah. the most developed capital markets. And again, it's 70% of EU financial services. So I would say, though, that 
Although there is state support in the EU coming out of Brussels, coming out of national government, there is also state support in the US. This will never work if state capital or state-funded capital is the main source of capital. There has to be low-cost, easy-to-access mechanism for entrepreneurs throughout the entire union, from the east to all the way to the west, to access alternatives to bank lending. And if we do not find a way to turbocharge, make it easier, turbocharge access to that long-term patient capital, what you were talking about, sir, which is those hotbeds of innovation, two things will happen. They'll either sell out too quickly, because you, you've done the family of friends in the second round and the third round, and you many, many years from listing in the market. Mm -hmm. And we know how ossified listed markets are in many European countries because they're way too small. They don't have the liquidity. So if you're at an early stage, at some point, what happens? You've got great technology. You don't have the next sort of step in the ladder, in the capital ladder. You sell out. And you mostly sell out to perhaps Silicon Valley-based uh, 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 enterprise. So what we're losing is the transformation of that intellectual property investment in our universities. We're losing access to the 100, 2, 3, 400 billion dollar or euros or whatever you, currency you want companies because they're not in the EU. That's what's going to create the wealth to pay for all the other things we, we want. Good education, free transportation, health care, and all the welfare, that is a good thing. But it has been funded by debt for the last 20 years or so. Okay. And those bills are coming due today. Okay. Let's hear from Quick. Olivier on those various questions. <clears throat> on that very question, I know much less than uh, than you do, so I'll, I'll leave it aside. I'll just uh, say that I agree with poor on Greece, yeah. which is, it seems to me that uh, what the fund is pushing, which is a lot of primary surplus and debt restructuring, are absolutely essential. But they are necessary conditions. They are not sufficient conditions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is absolutely striking if you look at the decrease in the current account deficit in, in Greece, which is now more or less back to zero. Mm -hmm. uh, it is entirely from import compression due to low activity. None of it is due to an improvement in export. Mm -hmm. uh, if they can't take care of that, and that means structural reforms of some sort, then even the things that the fund is recommending would not be enough. Yeah. <coughs> OK, great. Um, we've got to end it here, unfortunately. Um, please stick around for the next panel, which will discuss how the EU and US economies impact one another. We have a coffee break now, but we're going to reconvene at 11, so in 10 minutes here.